Hey everybody, uh, it's Jake here. Welcome to Praise Dionysus. Uh, praise him. Uh, so this week we are talking about De La Salle College's production of Almost Maine, and we are talking about Bloomshed's production of Paradise Lost. Uh, thanks for coming along. Uh, hey, so, hi everyone. So, funky twist, so James died. James has COVID? He had, here's far too much information. He had gastro and then... Oh, rest in peace, sweet king. <laughs> got gastro and then got COVID and now is, you know, gasping for air and is in his bed at home. Oh, I didn't know he had COVID. Yeah. Yeah, right? Okay. Yeah, so that little concerned voice you're hearing in the mm. distance is is Elizabeth Brennan. She is the well, first... I didn't know whether I was supposed to talk No, no, I, 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 no, I rambled too long and then too vividly described a person suffering from COVID without introducing you, so you were forced to like sit there and stare at me. Oh, I Yeah, no, Elizabeth is here. So this is Elizabeth Brennan. Uh, hi! That was a great example of her voice. And, yeah, she's here as like our first ever co-host mm. on, on Praise Dionysius. Um, praise him! Praise him! <laughs> I have listened once or twice. <laughs> you sweet angel. Yeah, no, she's she's one of my favourite people in the world. And oh she's my gosh. crazy talented and stuff. And so, yeah, it's such a thrill to have her here. And, um, yeah, as uh, and one of the shows that we're talking about today is Bloomshed's Paradise Lost. Oh, yeah. Which, which you're fresh off of. I mean, I, I was involved, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was there. You were fully I, I in it. I definitely was there every night. <laughs> Uh, COVID tried to get us, but we stamped on its face. Oh God, did it? Because that's the kind of company we are. Yeah, good, good job on the stamping. Did um, it get any of you? Well, so one of our uh, actors and, well, actually the the guy who sort of runs the company, um, his partner got it just like the night before we did our tech run. Okay. Um, yeah, so he couldn't come to our tech run because he was doing the whole PCR thing. Um, and apa- and somehow he escaped it. But, like, I don't know. I can't explain it. Sleeping in the same bed. Uh, using the same saliva, I can only assume. You can super keep describing that if you want. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, definitely golly. saliva exchange, I have heard. Oh. <laughs> I just heard. I mean, I don't want to. That lucky dog. Just... <laughs> Um, yeah, but it, so it was okay. Nobody got COVID. We had right. an understudy, Laura, who was wonderful, but um, she didn't need to, we didn't need to break the glass for Laura. Okay. <laughs> Everything was okay. Oh, great. Oh, good. Well, good on her for cramming all that stuff into her head and then not getting mm. to use it. Yeah, kind of awful for Laura, actually, but um, yeah. Great. Okay, cool. So let's start off as we sort of always do, <laughs> um, talking about our weeks. Do you want to go first? Do you want to give your week like a mm. rating out of five stars? Out of, and then... out of five stars. Yeah. Well, um... I mean, I finished the show, obviously. Actually, I should zero in on one thing, shouldn't I? I did have something uh, kind of fun happen to me. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, great. <laughs> um, I do these incursions where I go into schools and perform Shakespeare sometimes. And that was happening simultaneously with a lot of other work things and doing the show. Um, and we had a new Romeo to break in. Because uh, you're Julietting. I am Juliet. <laughs> oh. I guess, have you Julietted before? I've never Julietted in real life, okay. only in the school setting, um, in spite of being in my 30s. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just keep banging that horse. <laughs> 
if that's the correct phrase. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, had a new Romeo to break in. He's wonderful, mm. um, very talented, very good at sort of reading and acting at the same time, which is something I always struggle with. Anyway, it was his first show, and I was like, oh, I need to support him in this. How Wait, terrifying. when you say first show, like his first go doing this incursion Romeo and Juliet? Yeah, yeah, Not his yeah. first acting role. Oh, no, no. Oh, great. Good, because that's a big one to step yeah, into. Yeah, we discovered him at the <laughs> bank. <laughs> he was yelling at a teller like Charlie Theron, and we thought, you! <laughs> What movie is she yelling at a bank teller in? No, okay, so I actually read this this morning. Yeah. Charlize Theron was discovered, uh, quotation marks, by someone who was like in the line behind her at the bank. And she was having an argument with the bank teller and the person who discovered her was like, oh, I like her style. I like her fiery energy and her Uh, perfect face. Yeah. (laughs) Gonna cast her in something. Oh my god, and this mm. person had the power to make that happen. Apparently they did, yeah. That's bonkers. It's did she have a bunch of acting bonkers. training behind her? Or she yeah, was just... I don't know. Okay. I really don't know. I feel like she was a model. I have a, I have a vague memory that she was a model. Not that I know a lot about Charlie, <laughs> or I'm innately particularly interested in her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because what is your favourite Charlie's performance? Oh, favourite Charlie's performance. Or Charlie's movie where she turned up. I've barely seen things with her in it, actually. I mm. suppose it's it's the it's Mad Max, probably. Oh, great answer, yeah. But you know, this yeah. That yeah, movie was so overwhelming. Mad Max. Yeah, yes, I yeah. definitely didn't want to see it at the time. I was it... dragged in by the boyfriend. No, me too. I don't know why. <laughs> How did I end up in that cinema? I, I have no clue. Yeah, but I was pretty in- into it, particularly the moment where all the red sand like flies at the camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was very exciting. For Fantastic, me. <laughs> and that like super like unnecessary like guy playing the guitar the entire time. Oh yeah, I loved him. Yeah, loved that mm. choice. Um, <laughs> really was like, oh, this kind of risk taking in an Australian film. <laughs> is what I want to see. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so many people could have been like, no, that's the stupidest. Yeah, but and no it was. One was that voice. But also, it was. It was transcendent and yes. wonderful. Oh my God. And also something that movie did really well, I thought, was the thing of bringing it back to silence and quiet so you wouldn't mm. be overwhelmed by how much of that, like everything else was just like a loud diesel-fueled cyclone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The peti- yes, the nighttime scenes in the desert. It was very beautiful. Mm. Yeah, and sort of tranquil. Um, gosh, I'm way off track, aren't I? What was I saying? Yeah. Romeo oh, and Juliet. You broke in a Romeo. <laughs> you banged a horse and broke a Romeo. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I really need to, you know, be there and be the confident one and and help him, which turned out to not be the case at all. He's mm. like way more confident than I am, <laughs> and like really comfortable in the school setting, really good with the teenagers. Oh. But I picked so for the balcony. Yeah. Um, I picked this table that was kind of like moon shaped and blue. Okay. Because I thought that was quite symbolic of the <laughs> and, railing of a balcony. Well, well, both of that, but and also the um. Just the night and day, the light and dark, the all the symbolism in the balcony scene. Because oh, moons are at night time. That's the thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, it was terrible. It was a terrible decision. Um, the bench was? Well, the, the the table was, because I was using it as a balcony, I was standing on it, and of course, moon shape is not the most stable shape for a table to be. <laughs> a human is not organically designed to walk comfortably on a moon without paying no, attention. No, indeed, no. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't paying attention, because I was emoting, <laughs> as we do. And the table flipped over in the middle of the oh balcony my... scene, Jesus. tipped me off, I swore loudly in front of all the teenagers <laughs> <laughs> and had to just carry on, which was fine. Like, they laughed and it was okay. Oh, and good. I was just really like, bang, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> was how it went. Oh, actually, am I allowed to swear on this one? I am, aren't I? Swear this more. Is a swear yeah, podcast? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's disgusting here. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh. I need to calm down. <laughs> and then anyway, gonna, Adam, okay. should I give a score? Is it Do it. Yeah, okay. yeah, please. Um, and justify the score. You can't just okay. throw a number at me and then move on. I mean... This week has actually been quite difficult, but I'm going to give it a four because there were a lot of there were a lot of overwhelmingly wonderful moments. Oh wow! Mm. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, but all yeah, actually, maybe that's not accurate. But if I give it a three, it feels like I'm kind of saying it was the middle of the road. You know? The way you, the way you just described it sounds mm. like what it was like a swamp of terrible, but there were a few. <laughs> Well, like yeah. neighbouring weeds with nice flowers in That's them. That's it, yeah. Okay. Some really uh, wonderful little sparks in amongst <laughs> the inferno. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, Jake. Oh, well, Jake, how was your week? Well, what is your final decision on the star rating? I'm going to go with... Um, I'm going to go with four out of five and then not think too hard about it. Beautiful. But let's talk about your week. Because My week? I'd love to hear about your week. Oh, that's very kind. Mm. You shouldn't because, no, it wasn't <laughs> wasn't full of, you know, peaks and troughs necessarily. A bit troughy. Yeah. What happened? I'd say I worked, you know how I'm like a bartender at the forum. I, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a thing. It's one of my, you know. You tend, tend to the bar. I tend to the bar as best I can. <laughs> I tend to tend. And I, yeah, worked at Amel and the Sniffers. What? It's a band? <laughs> I didn't know it was a band. It's one of those, like, cool Australian bands that people bring up in conversations sometimes. Oh, to, like, God, I think, hate them. Yeah, right? To, like, prove their coolness. But it's like, oh, yeah, are you not into them? Like, oh. you should be. Their music's amazing. It's like, no, I'm sorry. I'm busy listening to country music. Sure. I don't know who Shania these are. Twins, if you're oh. not in it for love, which oh. is something I'm out of here. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> Have you watched her documentary yet? I have not. Should I? I haven't watched it either. Apparently mm. it just came out. She has had a rough life from what yes. I hear. Shania? Yeah. Mm. A bonkers, crazy, upsetting life. Yeah. My experience of understanding what her life is outside of her immaculate music is like, I remember for some reason when I was a child, we had a recording of one of her concerts. I think it was her Come On Over tour. Oh, yeah. I think. God, that album's incredible. Fuck. It's- and throughout the concert footage, there were like interspersed moments of her walking through the Canadian snow, talking about the inspiration <laughs> for the music. And she just explained how from this moment on was inspired by the death of her parents in a car crash. Ah. So that's a fact that's well, like stuck inside of my head. Okay. Um, but yeah. Otherwise, the closest I came to reading her memoir, which I was going to do, but it's far too long, was okay. like listening to these two girls summarize it <laughs> on the internet. And yeah, it sounds like a real mess that she's made it's it a re- uh, yeah yeah that's definitely what i have have picked up um i'm just, I'm just part of my brain is going from this moment yeah, i'm trying <laughs> to figure the out room. i can hear the, the <laughs> horror in the very yes, <laughs> pain of losing your parents mm. um yeah god horrible. yeah have but, you ever seen her live before no i did one time it was yeah? great how old were you it was so fucking good it was maybe like two or three years ago really yes it was great. There were so many really standout moments. There was like... Drink- ah! Ah! <laughs> I just love how she shouts oh, fuck, <laughs> at like the good. start of every song. Yes! <laughs> wow! Let's go, girls. Yes. <laughs> yeah, th- when they were doing river dancing during Don't Be Stupid, Ooh. was this vision... I had never thought to river dance to that song, but it's the best decision anyone's ever made artistically. Cool. And then... Um, what else happened? There was this part where she sort of like inadvertently made fun of this chubby fan that she brought onto stage, which I can't get into it because it was too upsetting. (laughs) It's like, you know, don't meet your heroes. But then something that really sticks out outside of all of the wonder of what she was doing, Mm -hmm. I think a really illuminating part. And I think it ties interestingly to 
based on what I understood from the memoir through the eyes of these two girls that read it for me, <laughs> was like there's this real thing of like her beauty and sex appeal being of significance to her in a in a unique yeah, okay. way to her outside of the way that patriarchally every woman has to be so like I'm against their will aware of it. Mm. Um, this <laughs> this part where it's like you know how after. Come on over. This is, you know, getting real deep into the Shania Twain discography. <laughs> After, come on over. She took this weird left turn. Did you find this as well towards, like, sexy country pop? I mean, I feel like that's the part of her discography I'm not terribly familiar with. Mm. But maybe, maybe I would certainly believe it of her. Yeah, yeah. But so what was the reason behind that? I, I, hopefully this documentary will explain it. I'm yeah. not sure. But there was this part where she had this, like, hot Canadian guy that was <laughs> opening for her on this tour. And then he came out later on during her set and they started doing all these, like, sexy duets that she has. Oh, and yeah. it was interesting to sort of, like, as they were performing, to look across at the crowd and just see everyone so disinterested <laughs> in this, like, this almost, like, beautiful diva of a woman singing this, like, oh, let's have sex. I really love sex in you. And everyone's just like, nah, <laughs> sing still the one. I don't want to listen to this. I I get you're having fun, but I don't care, Shania. Oh, Shania. No, Shania. But, yeah. yeah. So what was I saying? Yeah, worked Amal and the Sniffers. I went into it nervous because I assume because they're called Amal and the Sniffers, I thought that they would have a really large, terrifying gay following because, mm. but, yeah, no, their following was less gay than expected. Okay. Um, what, was the music any good? Like, could you like, say that it, it was worth that kind of, you guys should really get into this? No, I see the appeal. I get, like, it's high energy and loud, mm. but... No, like, it's not for me, but it's for the people that were there. They were super into it. They had two sold-out shows at the Forum, which, mm. you know, is a thing that the two of us will obviously accomplish sometime soon. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But when, when we do our Shania Twain and Canadian Hot Guy <laughs> exactly. tribute show. When we do Party for Two together. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I no. love sexing, being sexy. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, but then, yeah, and then after the concert was over, I, like, stuck around, like, like with, like, three of my colleagues at the forum, and then one of, uh, like, one of, like, because he's, like, sort of, like, runs it, sort of, kind of, mm. took us on this, like, spooky tour of the forum after dark. Oh. It was crazy. So, we, like, went into all of these, like, empty, abandoned rooms, okay. and we went into Forum 2, that upstairs <laughs> cinema at the forum, where apparently a guy killed himself in the projection room once, oh and so God. we sat in the dark and tried to summon his ghost, and we may have been <laughs> successful. Depending on your perspective. Oh, how could you tell? How'd you, like, oh, we kept what did, seeing, what signs did he give oh you? Oh my God. He, we, he kept seeing, like, we kept seeing like peripherally like spiritual movements. And then me and Max could have sworn that we saw a bunch of like ominous lighting happening in the projection booth from our vantage point down the bottom of the seating bank. You seem skeptical. And Adam had this like, app on his phone that he insisted could translate. Oh God, a ghost app. Yes, he said that he could translate like ghost noises into like real words on this app. So it's, he kept saying things like Natalie and oh, run. Is there a Natalie present? I, well, maybe <laughs> spiritually. Wow. Yeah, no. Anyway, yeah. So I guess, my, <laughs> I'll give my week a spooky 22. Oh, nice. Yes, yeah, 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 thank right. you. Um, do I'm you feeling to... 22. Yeah. Oh. I, don't know, I don't know why I'm just reaching for all the country music references. No, that's great. <laughs> I'm really glad that you consider like Taylor Swift's Red album to still be country. I would say it's definitely tipping tipping into country. Yeah? Yeah? Oh, Isn't good. that reasonable? No, that's... any Anyone that considers Taylor Swift to be a country artist, I'm into. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for when she re-records her debut album. Oh, that one that has Oh, our song! Oh my god. Oh my god. My year 12 experience would have been entirely different if our song had not been released by then. Our song, that's what it's oh called. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about some theatre? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> um, Elizabeth. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I returned at last to my high school of graduation. Oh, there this, is a better term for that. I did not know this was your high school. Uh, yes, I went. Mm. Yeah. So I graduated from De La Salle mm-hmm. in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I returned there with <laughs> a, a, a pal of mine who graduated in the same class as me. Cool. My good friend, Luke. We returned illustriously mm-hmm. to a school where our names are on boards. <laughs> wow. Our names. Did everybody hold up swords for you to walk under? And That's what we expected. Shockingly, no. People, no. They treated us like civilians. Okay, were, were there any just like teachers or faculty members that were like, "Oh, it's Jake and Lou"? <laughs> yes, there was one of them. Yes, so handsome psychology teacher who taught oh. me psychology in I believe year eleven. Mm-hmm. He was there because the play we went and saw, which is called Almost Maine by John Cariani. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, he approached the two of us because we were sitting in the front row, and he approached us and he was like, "Ah!" And I was like, "Ah!" <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and and he his wife. Um, directed it because apparently she works at the school as well as some sort of like drama staff member mm, person. Nepotism. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, can we get into that Ooh. at some point? <laughs> the nepotism abounding at De La Salle College <laughs> Melbourne. Yeah, uh, Jennifer Benici directed this production. Oh, cool. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, do you have much experience with Almost Maine as a text? Not at all. Not at all? Not at all. You've just never heard these words before. Ha- uh, no, say it again. Yes. <laughs> I forgot <laughs> what it's called. Um, it's called Almost Maine by John Almost Cariani. Almost Maine. Almost John comma Cariani. No, I don't have any experience with this actually, which sure. is a real shame. I have nothing to offer. <laughs> no, perfect. You? Perfect, um, perfect. Yeah, no. It's one of those, I don't know how quintessentially it is the case, but I believe it's like... It's one of my favourite plays for a number of reasons. Oh, okay. Which was exciting. Like, the idea of getting, like, going back to my high school and getting to see one of my favourite plays happen yeah. there. Did you have anything to do with this? Were you, like, writing oh, letters since outside you... Outside of the law of attraction? <laughs> no. It's just it's just happened this way. Um, but, yeah, it as a play, I think it's, like, one of the more frequently performed texts by high schools. Like, it's not quite our town, <laughs> but it's up there in terms of it because it's, like, an episodic piece about romance. Okay. So it's, like, very capable of filling itself up with a lot of different, like, characters and cast members, mm-hmm. so it's relatively ideal for a high school situation. Okay. Um, but yes, it exists as a text because John, again, I only know these things because I care about this play so much, <laughs> but like John Cariani who wrote it, wrote it because he was like an actor and playwright and he and his friends needed scenes to be able to perform whenever they needed scenes to perform. Yeah, so he just sort of like wrote this collection of duologues for them to perform whenever they needed them. Um, and then just like strung them all together and made them into a play. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like a love and information vibe. In a sense, is that a huge stretch? I, oh no! In a <laughs> sense, that said that, I've never seen Love and Information. <laughs> oh, you smart person! Yeah, no, I can't stand Love and Information. Mm, okay. Do you? If you only understand it as concept, what? How do you feel about Love well, and Information? Well, my concept of Love and Informa- Love and Information is that it's little vignettes about love with like two two performers interacting. Uh, Per scene. Right. But is that not what it is? I think, <laughs> love and information, because it's the Carol Churchill play, mm-hmm. it's, I think, I think it's intended for more than two people to perform, because I think every time that I've seen it, it's had more than two people in it. Right. Um, but it's like, yeah, it's like, I've never seen what the rights look like when you choose to stage love and information. Maybe it's in the text itself, in like the opening pages of it. But it's like, you can order the scenes however many, like, however you want to. Oh, okay. And you can also leave... A particular number of them out if you want to as well and they i don't think she provides really any context for any of the scenes either so it's like just dialogue and then you can plonk it wherever you want to which whatever context you want to give it okay and this, this play was not like that it's this play kind of... similar in that it's about love mm. not explicitly information <laughs> and it's um episodic i mm-hmm. guess other things um 
But yeah, but yeah, so it happened. And they, the Kupikers did La Salle as a boys' school, mm. um, which is another thing that we cannot get into, <laughs> especially not in terms of the way that it affected Jake in his development. But uh, yeah, so they like shipped in. I think the, it's all there. It's all under the surface. Under I think the surface. We can read of, between the lines. The, of, of the conversation or of my psyche generally? <laughs> of your beard. Uh, oh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, and the, so they, they got the, the, the women in the cast from Our Lady of the Sacred Heart. College. Oh yeah. Or Olsh for those of you. <laughs> they capture them like they ca- I assume that musical was... <laughs> Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Oh my god. <laughs> Shit yes. You're the only person who cares about that musical enough. I care way too much. Oh about my that god. <laughs> I watch that, that that scene where they're chopping wood and singing oh, about being geez. lonely. Oh my god. So often. The lonesome polecat. Oh my god. I remember the first time I watched that movie, it was with like like a former lover of mine. <laughs> and we were watching it, and at the end of it, we both looked at each other and we were like, did you think that was the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Because I need you to believe that it was. Moving. <laughs> it is moving. It's it's also just like such a strange moment. So fucking weird. Such a weird Because is it film. one, not to be that film nerd, which mm. I'm not, but is, is, is it all one take? And it just follows... Oh, yeah. Because I've never thought of that until now. I know the dance they do is all one take. Oh. Like, the da 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 dance is yeah. all just, like, one thing. God, um, I shouldn't have brought that up as the first thing, because that is not the thing that stands out about why that scene is so magical. <laughs> Irrespective of the cuts. It's like... Because it's like axe choreography. Mm-hmm. The axe dancing. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Which... Uh, I, I don't know. I saw Wizard of Oz last week, and the Tin Man, <laughs> who I keep ranting to people about, did amazing axe dancing in that. <laughs> um, yeah, he was really great. Um... Yeah, but, yeah, no, keep talking about why you think that is so, the... Oh, I, I just, I, I don't, can't even really explain it. I haven't seen, I feel like I, re- I lent my DVD to someone a long time ago and mm. I haven't had it back since. But um, it's, yeah, I don't know why I became briefly obsessed with this when I was like 20 years old. Yeah. I'm kind of like watch it every day <laughs> yeah. and be like, what is it about this film? Oh my God. That um, I, I just find it hilarious, mm. um, but also kind of strangely moving. Yeah. Sure, that scene or the whole... Well, I almost the whole thing. The whole movie. Like, there's yeah. something about the 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 kind of the word the word. I don't, I don't know. Actually, I'm I'm so unprepared to talk about it. No, 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 no. The passion's <laughs> obvious. Yeah, I think at least that scene. There's something so lovely, and I'm mm. a sucker for it any time to almost an extent that it's a weakness of mine. Yeah. But a bunch of men singing beautifully on a mountain about their loneliness. Their loneliness, to, yeah, together these brothers. There's oh something about the the sort of familial relationships that that film captures that is like it's so overdone and ridiculous. Completely but it's beautiful. I mean, outside of like <laughs> as you say, the abductions. Well, this is the thing, mm. and I showed it to a friend of mine, and we got halfway through, and she was like, "I can't keep watching this." <laughs> <laughs> This I took those women. Painfully misogynistic. <laughs> <laughs> like, look, yeah. Yeah, but shut up, they want love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just like, you know, the marriage in the barn at the end with the fathers and the shotguns. Oh, like, what is, what is this movie? <laughs> Other than fantasy How fodder. did they get get how did this get through how did this get made yeah you know? well, i don't know rogers and hammerstein they're just very <laughs> assertive <laughs> yeah yeah but yes that's very much how i'm picturing this de la salle situation they've kind of just went to the girls school <laughs> put them in little bags and carried them over and then eventually they came to love them <laughs> i'm happy to imagine that was the backstory for this production yeah so they managed to abduct some really talented women oh. for this show <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to, I think the first thing to point out, which is like a really charming flourish about the show, like it's about love, of course. And so, um, there's a fair bit of like kissing that happens in the script instead of doing any kissing. They had, every time there was a kiss in the text, these puppeteers would walk in. (gasps) They were like four puppeteers and they would enter with these big puppet lips 
and then the lips would kiss each other. So there'd be like four sets of lips and then they'd pair up and kiss each other when in the text characters were meant to kiss each other. Oh my god! And they would also light up. <laughs> Isn't it incredible? I think it's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I don't quite know what it means. Are we meant to be sort of really zeroing in on the, the, the kind of danger of kissing in the current, in the modern age? The, I had not even thought about COVID. The COVID situation. Oh my like, God, that did not occur to me. Mm. Or, or is it trying to be like, you know, you don't have to kiss your peers. Is that the... <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to kiss your peers. You're welcome to. <laughs> I wonder. Are we doing like an intimacy coordination thing where it's like, you know, we just want everyone to feel safe. And if you don't feel safe, we'll use the puppets. God, like, I that... wonder. I wonder. Yeah. Did, did you ever have to kiss anyone? Because you Steiner schooled it, didn't mm, you? I did Steiner did, school. Did you ever have to kiss any of your peers for drama? Well... Um, I did not, but some of my peers did kiss each other on stage. That did happen. Okay. Was it um, much of a hullabaloo? It was a bit of a hullabaloo at the time. It was quite scandalous. Okay. Um, In a way that people coped with? Oh, yeah, they coped with it. I think it was sort of a raging hormones thing where secretly they were extremely thrilled to be kissing someone else. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, outwardly it was like, oh, God, mm. not you. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. Yeah. Okay. But it's funny to think about that now. I mean, this was like year eight. We were like 14 years old. Oh, God. Doing a production of Much Ado About Nothing. And um, Benedict <laughs> and Beatrice kissed each other on stage. Huh. Yeah. God. I can't imagine, because if I had been in year eight, it would have been my first kiss. Mm. And I wonder what, the, what that would have been like for it to be. Because I've, I've heard many a story of people's first kisses being for theatre. Yeah. You know? And I, I wonder how I feel was, about that. Actually. Really? Well, I don't know. It depends on... I, I'm always interested in what people classify as being the first kiss. Like, does it have to be in a romantic scenario to be considered a first kiss? As opposed to, like, like an aunt at Christmas well, on your cheek. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know when you're young and sometimes kids kiss each other just for the... scan. Is this a normal thing? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's... Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. No, I had a similar conversation with Joel Beasley... Um, don't know why I used his full name, like Angela Anaconda. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's a full name type guy. He absolutely is. Yeah, yeah. Beasley, uh, Joel Beasley Pants. Yeah. Um, we talked about it in the documentary we're in. Oh, yeah. Uh, we talked about first kisses and he had a similar thing of like talking about whether or not he counts like a funny cousin, family, friendy when you're a child as a joke kind of kisses yeah, as first kisses. Yeah, does it count? Mm. You know? is, it, is it lip to lip contact that counts or is it like... The first kiss being when someone wanted to kiss you because mm. they had a feeling that led them to want to kiss you. Right. Yeah. I wonder. Well, in, if that's the rule then, then mm. does a theatre kiss even count? No, I guess it doesn't count. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you consider, like, w- before this conversation, if I had asked you what your first kiss would have been, would your answer have been the one that happened because of theatre? I mean, I know that one happened early on because of theatre and, and that maybe to me at the time was like, oh, yeah, first kiss, even though... You know, we, Steiner School. <laughs> we did briefly play something called Kiss Chasey when we were like really young. Oh, God. We'd kind of catch someone and kiss them. And... On the mouth? I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that weird? It just isn't a thing that ever happened to me. But no, I guess it's no, no. Let's not say it was weird. Maybe it was. I guess. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe Steiner breeds horny children, and that's what we... <laughs> but like, kiss chasing is a familiar term. I guess a lot of kids do that. I think it's more almost like when when you're that age, it's like um, it's like the the weird 
dangerous adult thing of, that's kind of disgusting that you're like, mm. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, let's let's uh, push our boundaries. Yes. Um, rather than it being kind of a romantic thing at all. Right, because that's before you've even got an idea of what that is. Mm. Right, it's just mm-hmm. like a mechanical, physical thing that you see people do on yeah, television. Yeah, yeah, and everyone's like, ooh, afterwards. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Which for some of, us, some of us is not a feeling we grow out of. <laughs> Kissing is disgusting. And we should talk about it more openly. It certainly can be. Uh, so, these children... Not to call what, are, children. I mean, what are your feelings about teenagers kissing each other on stage? <laughs> I, was, I was not expecting the puppet choice. Mm. I wasn't going in raring to see <laughs> teens kiss. But I guess... I don't know what's taught me that that's a reasonable expectation for teenagers to be emulating that type of physical affection on stage. But I was prefer- like prepared for it. Um, no, I guess I have no strong feelings about it. Mm. I don't think I've ever... No, the only person... I never had to kiss anyone in high school on stage. But then when I played Prince Charming in Bo Morris Theatre Company's production of Cinderella the Musical... Uh, not to keep talking about Rodgers and Hammerstein. Oh, the crowd clamours for oh. a remount. Oh, of course they do. Yeah, no, that was my first stage kiss, I think, um, with Cinderella. But, yeah, no, by then I think I was like 19. Were you, like, was that uncomfortable for you? No, it was fine. It really kind of meant nothing. You know, mm. with all the gayness, it kind of meant <laughs> meant nothing at all. Mm. And I was so deep in character that it was really more... It was Christopher kissing Cinderella more so than it was Jake. Um, yeah, no, I don't Consumed know. Consumed professional. Of course. Um, so let's dive into some of these kids. Mm. So, which is not a phrase that I want isolated <laughs> and used for any other purpose. Let's dive into these kids. I just want to point out, they were really impressive across the board, but I thought... Um, I'm just going to launch in with, like, the one that I got sort of, like, most obsessed with, I think, was there was this scene that started off as feeling like... Because it had been maybe, like, three or four years since I'd, since I'd sat down and read this play that I care about so much. And I'd never seen it on stage before, so it was nice to see it happen. Um, but, yeah, so this scene started off... It was a scene between Harry Perdue and Brooke Wilson. Um, and it kind of begins as them finishing up ice skating... Because almost Maine, the town that they live in called Almost in Maine is very cold. So the whole thing's very snowy. Like the whole set itself was like snow mounds and snow. It was cold. And Did they do um, a snow drop? Did that happen? There was no snow drop, which I was really grateful for. Oh, God, yes. I think. Hate the snow drop. Why do you hate the snow drop? Well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) What snow hurt you? Yeah. Um, Just that it's hard to keep it all up there, so it kind of drips throughout the show, and then you know it's coming. Yes, that's what I experienced the... when I... Did you watch, at the MTC, they did that show... Yes! Did you see What's that? What's it called? The Silence Fucking... Within, or something. The, or the, the Listen oh, to the Voice the, Within. Listen or... to the Sound... Sound... The, sa- the, the sound, sound Within? Inside? The Sound Inside! <laughs> yeah, you saw that as well? I did, yeah. And the, yes, it did the snow. It was like, you knew the snow was coming, mm-hmm. the whole show, and yeah, then it finally happened. like, two minutes in, a little bit of snow yeah, drops down. Like, oh my god, why do the lights have dandruff? And it's like, no, that was a spoiler. And then when it finally happened, did you have the thing too? It was like, oh, this would have been really stunning if I had not known it was coming yes. the whole show. Yes. yes, it would have been beautiful. And oh. then it lasted for too long. It did! Mm. And didn't mean enough things. Yeah. Oh, God, what did you think... Did you have any sort of, like, big revelatory decision about what that show meant at the end? Because <laughs> Did you have the experience, too, where it's like it felt like a twist was coming, but the twist never came? Well, it was almost... Yes, yes, I did. Yeah. Um, also, was, I, I was entering into it thinking there was going to be a mystery of some kind. Because on the poster, it was like... It's like a spellbinding mystery know, or something. A mur- like a murder mystery yes. type thing that we're doing, like, a noir situation. Yeah. Um, And there was, like, maybe, like, a little feeling of it at times. Like, mm. some yeah, something was going to happen, and then it, it kind of didn't. The guy... Uh, oh, God. Can I spoil us? Oh, spoil did, it. Have you spoiled? Yeah, no, it's... 
spoiled enough. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the the guy dying was kind of a, an anticlimax, I guess. Yeah. I guess the twist of her not dying and him dying was something, but it was not in any way mysterious. No, no, no not mm. in, in the sense that nothing was left for us to guess. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing, I mean, uh, like, uh, just the title and the way that they used the title of the play, mm. I the, the idea of listening to the sound inside of you... <laughs> Is that... Um, <laughs> yeah. ...was... It felt like a profound moment of her going, listen to the sound inside, listen to the sound inside, listen to the sound inside. That meant nothing? Um, well, that could potentially mean a lot, but almost like that little piece of it could have existed without the rest of the show, if that's what it's about. You know, is this what this is about? Like, trying to <laughs> delve into yourself and what, what the sound of yourself is mm. and being comfortable with the sound of yourself. I, uh, this is just kind of what I, like, in a sort of meditative um Buddhist sense, I was mm. like, oh, I like, I like that. I like it as a moment, um, as an idea. But um, is does it is the rest of the play leading up to that? Is that what the rest of the play is about? I don't know. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. Mm. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, and to even to think of that with obviously with the sound inside being a play that's so much about text and analyzing text and creating text and formulating text mm. and the written word being a result of living. Yeah, I guess is a simplistic idea of some of like elements of the play. Yeah, sure. The idea of text generation being an exercise in listening to the sound inside is something. Because, yeah, I certainly had, especially with it being the title, with her sitting there repeating it to herself in what can be read as a relatively profound moment. Yeah. It did kind of, as you say, stand very comfortably outside of the rest of the work. Yeah. In a way that, yeah, it was a strong moment, but not a moment that really rippled very much into the rest of what the show was. No. And so to then also title the show that. Yeah. Like, what are, is... what, are we meant to be zeroing in on this? Yeah. And if so, why? Yes. <laughs> and especially if you're going to paint it as being like a big mystery. Mm. So coming back to that does not help inform anything that happens <laughs> towards the end. Her weird decision to kill herself, but then he... It's like, none of this really points at any of the other stuff that happens in the show in a way that illuminates much. Mm. It's just kind of like a, a, a bunch of stuff that happens in a row and then it snows. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then they sort of tease that maybe something else was going on the whole time, but then, no, she isn't his mother. This isn't a book. No. It's like, no. It's just like, oh, she has cancer and now she doesn't have cancer anymore. Mm, Be- miraculously healed. Yes, maybe. Maybe like, that's the mystery. Ma- <laughs> Why isn't that bitch dead? <laughs> it's the real mystery. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I sort of in, enjoyed the process of trying to figure it out, even though I didn't really figure it out. I didn't really uh, sure. find my way through that particular production. Right. But the snow, yeah, distracting. The snow was distracting. <laughs> no, you're right. That is the first I get the first memorable time that it's like, obviously with any show you go into, you should be having to work things out the entire time. Mm. But the first time in recent memory where it's like, there's something you have to solve. And so you're staring at everything yeah. with such intensity. It's like, okay. Because not even are you trying to solve anything yet. You're trying to find out what it is you're meant to be solving. Mm. And that is a type of like mental focus yes. that I do not like carrying around. Mm. To look at everything. <laughs> like it feels like you're a detective, but like all the time. <laughs> That's true. I really felt like I was cast as a detective in mm. this scenario. Yeah. Um, and just like utterly failed. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I hadn't thought about it that way. It's almost like if you woke up one day and someone was at the foot of your bed and was like, mm. someone you speak to today has murdered seven <laughs> yes. people. And then you have to live your whole day being like, was it you? Was it you, George, who works at the supermarket? Get all the clues together. Yes. I was like, it. Yes, and then you get to the end of your day and then the person's like, oh, you were looking for someone all day? Oh, I forgot I told you that. 
Anyway, almost made. Oh, okay, okay. Acting, okay so yeah. Piles of snow, no snow falling from the ceiling. Yes, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, snow around, um, puppet lips to signify kisses, <laughs> and yeah, and then, yeah, and so a bunch of scenes happen. Also, yeah, so this scene, they just finished ice skating, is the beginning of the scene, and this couple starts talking to each other, and the, okay, so Brooke Wilson is playing the wife, and so... It's these kids playing these people that seem like they're probably in the, like in their forties, which is ah, a delight from I the love beginning. That. And Brooke can't find her one of her shoes, so she's stuck in one ice skate for the entirety of the scene. <laughs> and so obviously it's top-notch physical comedy because watching someone walk around on one ice skate, heaven. <laughs> and yeah, this yeah, is the I, role we all dream of. Oh my god, yes, having to hobble back and forth. <laughs> yes, it's like oh, it's like it's the female Richard the Third is this role. <laughs> Um, and then, but yeah, so it's like my sort of like mind was like, oh, okay, maybe I don't, I, I didn't remember this scene super well. I was like, oh, maybe this is like, you know, a dud one. And maybe just because like, oh, if it's just physical comedy, maybe this scene won't go anywhere profound. And then I died because, so it's like, okay, these kids are clearly talented. This scene is going fine. And then what proceeds to happen is, oh my God, they just start talking about how the, the two of them, they don't have fun anymore and they can't work out why. And then the husband starts talking about the fact of like, because she's never honest with him, he has to be away from her to understand who he truly is because whenever she speaks to him, it's almost as if she's lying to him because she's never honest about her dissatisfaction. And she's like, we never have fun. And he's, because they're never like together enjoying themselves. But somehow these kids who are in like, from what I can tell, like year 11 and 12, have managed to convey the misery of being in your 40s. And in a marriage that isn't working, and there's this part at the end of the scene where Harry Perdue was just looking off into the middle distance. And I just... (laughs) The way the light was hitting his face, and the way that he was just, like, staring out of this horizon, clearly, like, imagining the life that he should have led. And, like, you and I have so many of these conversations about, like, are we living our lives correctly? Are we on the right path? Are we we doing the thing that we in the future will look back on and be like, correct choice, you are wise. (laughs) And he was conveying all of this in his, like in his little high school face. And I was like on the brink of tears, sitting next to Luke. And I was just like frozen in this like, this is incredible. And the two of them were doing it because it was even like looking at Brooke, looking at him being like, I've chosen this man to spend my entire life with. And I feel like I'm making him miserable and I can't be happy anymore. And I don't know why this isn't more fun. Like we made the right choices. We decided to get married in this town. Why isn't it as good as everyone told us marriage would be? Like we used to like each other, and they're doing—they're managing to get all of this out of their out of their bodies. Out of their tiny little their, high school. Oh my god! Selves. It was bonkers. I mean, do you think it was even more powerful to see little little kids <laughs> doing I think this? Like in the sense of like, there's something like artistically profound about the fact of them being capable of doing that. Mm. Like that's something. I think. Yeah, I think there's something even in like. And this comes to, like, a larger thing, too, I think, as well, of, like, I don't know if you've had a similar experience when it comes to even, like, audience engagement with a work, but it's, like, there was something to me so moving about the idea of, like, and it was heightened because it was a high school, the way of us sitting there watching this high school production, which is largely about, like, love and romance, but also it's, like, so, like, like chock full of, I hate saying chock full, that's so gross. <laughs> so full of like metaphors, like mm. to the point where it's like, there's this scene that happens between Mackenzie Hutchinson and Spencer Ballantyne, which was also like a really standout scene that was so beautiful because it was like, she was breaking up with him and she was bringing in all of these like 
these big sacks and it was unclear as to what it was. And like, that's how the scene begins. And he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm bringing it all back. And he's like, what do you mean? And she's like, all the love you gave me, I'm bringing it back. And it's these literal sacks of things that she's bringing back and putting in his house. And so, and she's explaining why they have to end things. And it doesn't seem like he's participating emotionally properly in the relationship. And she's bringing in all these bags and these bags and these bags. And then at the end, she's like, I give, give mine back, give back all the love that I gave to you. And he pulls out this like one little bag. And it's like, that's the thing. And the whole audience goes, oh, it was like, fuck. And that, that kept happening. Like, I'd say every scene had a moment where everyone in the audience was like, oh. Like, right. And it was like, it was remarkable because it was like, it's things that I think even if, if you described that scene to somebody, I think many a person, especially someone, you know, in their 20s to 30s would be like, well, that's a bit schmaltzy and garbage like why <laughs> that's some pretty like lazy metaphors you're playing with but something about like this crowd oh, and it being the sincerity of the teens the sincerity and that's the thing it's the sincerity of the teens and it's like I don't know how my heart would have coped with me being who I was when I was 17 or 18 being in a play well this is what I was just thinking about this I was kind of like you know the immediate response is like you know is this not so much is this appropriate but is this relevant for teenagers to be performing I wonder you know or is it really uh, an interesting process for a teenager to actually try and dig through some of this stuff that they may have to at some point yeah. encounter? Oh my god! Um, really early on, like, is is there some sort of a, a therapeutic element to this? A, a sort of a pre-therapy? Almost? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe there is something that, like, in order to kind of reach for something that is a bit beyond you, that's actually maybe maybe worthwhile. I wonder. A, a kind of a, a learning curve in some way, or or just a, a, to. To touch upon something that is 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 not relevant to you is useful, mm-hmm. or is not is potentially will at some point be relevant to you. I think watching it, watching teenagers try and try and do this, like the nice, maybe I don't know if this is how you felt, but I feel like watching that would really suggest to me that I was watching the part of these forty-year-olds that had remained at that age. Oh, I feel. Did you did you feel that? God, I guess I hadn't thought about it in reverse. Like the kind of little teenagers that sit inside of everybody. Like I feel like that as a as a viewing experience would have really shone. God, I wonder. I, I imagine that'd be a thing that would have. Like, I can't imagine what it would have been like for like a parent to see their child conveying emotions that mm. they've potentially felt as people that I guess you would presume have not lived emotions potentially at least to the extent and certainly not the context that these characters were conveying mm. but I want I, thought it, uh, I don't know maybe that's just part of that is me imagining the type of parent that I would want to be if I were to do I don't know but yeah oh my god I wonder I think maybe I'd have to get older before I can see <laughs> what you're describing I guess because I think I don't know if if part of me imagines to not be that far from a 17-year-old exploring love for the first time? Like, mm. I feel like I was only that a couple of days ago. But I wonder if everybody feels that way. Yeah. I, I've certainly felt like every time I've been in a significant relationship with someone, I've seen their teenage self still inside of them. Mm. I don't, do, you, do you ever feel that? Or you, you sometimes catch glimpses of, like, child person <laughs> inside of body? God, I think I've only started <laughs> consciously looking for that, mm. I think. And I wish I'd started doing it sooner. And what? And you've just always innately seen that in people. I think so. Yeah, I still feel like I, I see it often in people, mm. and that's. Um, I feel like that would have been very. Um, I don't. It's m- most probably not the intention of bringing this play <laughs> into De La Salle I wonder for the teenagers to perform. Mm. But I think that might have been one of those inadvertent dramaturgies that sort of I I would have 
um, grabbed onto when watching that. Right. Oh my god. God, that's so touching. Yeah. Oh god. I guess, and, and in a similar way, I just want to bring up Max Colpin, who was playing this guy that was just so sad. He was like sitting in this bar by himself. And his, like, ex-girlfriend came in that he was clearly still really in love with. And he, sort of, like, he comes to realise that she's there because she's going to her, like, hen's night because she's getting married. Okay. And you have to watch him. And again, this is, like, an adult experience that I'm sure that Max has never experienced. <laughs> but the way he went from, like, so jazzed to see her to realising that he's never going to get to be the one that marries her. Um, and to, to watch him go on that toboggan ride of misery. Um... <laughs> And then to, you know, debatably find some hope at the end of it. It was just, I don't know. And I, I think even just reflecting on it now and the things you just said um, really ugh, touches those things of like seeing, having to sort of like analyze. And maybe this was a thing that Jennifer Benici was thinking about. I wonder if she ever re related it to the kids or how much it was on her mind. But the potential helpfulness or emotional, I don't know, poignancy of an adult watching this production not that it was really intended, I imagine, for adults that weren't raising the children in the show. <laughs> um, but to see in a child an experience that I think a lot of us have of, I don't know, love feeling like it's at its end? I don't know. Love when it brings you such dismay because maybe its prospective doom is rendered into reality or something, Oof, you know, yeah, like yeah. when even like, you know, that you know how, as we both have, like, and yeah. I hope everyone does, you kind of have those love stories. Like you have those people that are their own standalone tale of longing and romance and adoration. Mm. And to really feel like one of those stories ends is so upsetting. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, does it mostly feel like endings in this production? Like most of the scenes seem to be focusing on the loss of, of things. Some of yeah, I'd say it's it, they're all kind of like at moments of change. I'd say it's a lot of like s someone in the scene determining that the rules that exist between the two people in the scene have to change by virtue of circumstance or decision. It's one person being like, "I've just fallen in love with you," or "Our love isn't working," or it's like, "I'm back because I've changed my mind." You know, it's it's those turning points. Yeah. You know, okay. You know, love. Do you think that you would have been capable as a teen mm. in performing in something like that? What do you think it would have done for you? God, it would have depended exact, very precisely on the timeline. Mm. You know? Um, yeah, no. If you... Yep, yeah, if you got me during year 12, there would have been a time where I would have been great. I would have given too much. <laughs> um, there would have been a time where I would not have been able to participate. I would have done my best. No, it was... Um, but I wonder how useful it would have been. I don't know... Mm. With being, you know, such a, like, a young doofus of an actor at that point, I wonder how much I would have been able, like, even been able to, like, put my emotions onto, like, the stage. I wonder how much I would have just been, like, struggling to get the lines down. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. What about you? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm thinking about it now. Mm. I mean, I was... Okay, so just diving into some Steiner lore. Yes, Steiner uh, lore. Year 10's production of Porgy and Bess. Yes. Uh, a real thing that my school did. <laughs> Let's not go into how inappropriate that was. Yeah, no, just well... slide right I, over it. I was in The Whiz. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, no. It was a very Caucasian production of The Whiz oh, that indeed. I was in. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, same here. Great. <laughs> um, but there was a... I was a character whose husband dies at the very start of the, of the music opera play thing that we were doing yeah um and i had to grieve him and sing a song 
Um, and I remember at the time feeling like this is not so much this is beyond me, but this is this is not something that I can really bring from a place of knowing. <laughs> sure, because you hadn't experienced those emotions. I mean, I guess so. Not that that's necessarily like important in performing, because I don't know that it always is. Mm. Um, but I remember kind of pretending to grieve for my husband yeah. <laughs> and being like, what am I doing? Oh God, that's so <laughs> Surely everybody just can see that that I'm just a little little baby. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, but you, you recognise that in yourself and you thought as part of your process as a child, you were like, I can't do this because... Well, that's I can't, do it, I can't do it, but almost like um, I feel like people are going to see through me and be like, you're just a, you're just a little thing. What do you, what do you, what do you know about Oh, grief? sure. Okay. <laughs> Sounds a bit like I took it too seriously, probably. <laughs> mm, in oh. that respect. <laughs> but amazing that at that age you were taking it that seriously. Uh, yeah. Oh, God. And how did you, did you get much feedback on, because it seems like feedback was very much on your mind while you were doing that performance. Did you get much feedback about how you went? I can't remember, okay. actually. Yeah. I just remember the experience of sort of, and I guess because I was singing as well, which I'm not very, like, comfortable with sometimes. I get a bit very nervous when singing. That was the first time I sang in front of people. Hmm. But it was really, yeah, the situation of grieving for this classmate. (laughs) Max, hello, Max, (laughs) wherever you are. Hope you're okay. Hope you're (laughs) fine. These lies stretched out in front of me, my dead husband. So dramatic, so ready. Oh, what a decision for them to do, Porky and (laughs) Bess. A true tragedy. Um, Yeah, I'm very intrigued by this dealer sale production though and I yeah mm. feel like it's probably not still on I imagine no no it was just like a two night performance yeah. thing which is a real shame it was really really worthwhile it was so touching mm. I kept almost crying which is again just because I'm weak but also because the production was great and as uh, as Jennifer Benici very very like I don't know she was like you know given flowers at the end and thanked for her work which she should have been because she was yeah clearly did really well but yeah said this like really wonderful speech about all the kids and now she was like this is just the beginning of their journey into the arts and this, this is like ah oh! go back um, don't do Turn it back. <laughs> cling to this <laughs> and leave it behind yeah no oh god isn't that something but yeah no i re- and, uh, yeah i really hope she's right um not because i'm hoping that they go into the arts necessarily because it's hard here yeah. it's really hard but some of them are just so clearly so talented so um yeah it, it'll be really exciting to see what they all do that's so, wonderful yeah. right yeah, anyway, yeah, that's that. Let's creepily keep tabs on them. Let's creepily keep tabs. <laughs> <laughs> Okie dokie. So, Elizabeth, so I went and saw Bloomshed's production of Paradise Lost you, after Milton. You did! Obviously, you were in it and had a big hand in making it happen. Yeah. So, I'm in the very uniquely blissful situation of having seen a work and now I can talk to one of my best pals about the experience of making it. Woo! Woo! Yeah. Um, oh, that's, yeah. Yeah. So thank you for being here for this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Oh my God. Thank you for coming to the show. Of course. Oh my God. A, a bunch of people did. It was very well attended from mm-hmm. what I can gather. Uh, Jake sat, just Jake sat in the front row. I was hoping you hadn't noticed. <laughs> oh no, I definitely noticed. <laughs> <laughs> front row, corner. <laughs> Perfect positioning. Yeah, mm. I think so. First off, who is the, what is the Bloom Shed? Tell me what that is. Oh, the Bloom Shed. Okay, so we're kind of a group of people that uh, got sort of, oh, well, actually, that's not even really true, is it? Um, the, I guess it's uh, myself and James and a gen- James Jackson, who is the sort of creative director of the company. It's his company, and he kind of is the person who's the push to make shows happen, generally speaking. Um, but I was kind of working with him at uni a little bit because we went to the same uni and another gentleman called Tom Molyneux and 
we kind of just made some stuff. I think we were quite inspired by this company that was really heavily lauded at Monash. If you recall, uh, God, what is it called? I'm panicking and forgetting the name. What's the, the name? What people? That the Tim Etchells. The um. Oh, uh, not fucking were, uh, forced entertainment. Forced entertainment. Oh, it is. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Um, and just thought you know it was really wild and exciting to make sh- make theatre in a shed and do these long form like impulse sessions of improvisation and make work from that. Um, yeah. So we did a lot of that and. We kind of just over the years have continued to work with each other. The sort of structure of it has changed a bit. But yeah, the bloom shed was kind of made, originally the work was made in a shed. Um, and yeah, it's become a lot more text-based as we've grown and, and maybe realised that the <laughs> long-form improvisation is not the best way always to make work. <laughs> um, yeah, but like everybody involved in the company or in the shows or in the ensemble, if you will call it that, uh, we're all sort of ex-Monash performers, um, mostly. Although I think Anna Louie, who is someone who joined us for this show and for Animal Farm, I don't think she's a, a Monash person. But, um, yeah, so we kind of just uh, get in rooms and uh, and write together and mm. then put on shows. Sure. And your tendency as a company to adapt texts, is that kind of like inbuilt into the work that you're kind of in the mood to produce of late? Or is that just a thing that... Um, I think that that is just a thing that that we are sort of interested in and there hasn't really been a discussion so much. It seems to be something that's grabbed on in the marketing of it. Oh, you know, it's a company that sort of reinvigorates old texts. Mm. Um, but that's just kind of, it, it's just nice to have somewhere to start from, I think. Oh, cool. <laughs> I don't okay, know sure. if it's a lack of originality, but <laughs> some, some piece of... Uh, ancient work that that can be kind of pulled apart and finding the interesting little kernels in there that to be to be made relevant or to be um played with yeah i guess yeah okay thank you okay great and so and you like what was your role with paradise lost um well uh i think how did paradise lost happen james um sent me like a brief for doing doing an adaptation of Paradise Lost that he thought was kind of a funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was all about McDonald's at the time. It was like oh, cool. okay. Satan is trying to franchise yeah. <laughs> something, something <laughs> along those lines. I thought it was really amusing. We forgot about it. And then like a couple of months later, I said, oh, you know, I'd be pretty interested in doing Paradise Lost. I read read that a long time ago and let's let's give it a go. Sure, because it had some sort of... Was it to do with James's initial brief or because Paradise Lost means something to you in terms of why you'd want to do it right now? I don't know. I, get, I think it was actually maybe the um, the sort of Catholic background that I have. <laughs> For some reason, I was deeply steeped in the First Testament <laughs> as a young child. Why were you? Because I, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. Yep. It was a very, very Catholic woman. Hmm. Um, and I guess she was just really concerned that I would go in a different direction. Uh, than Catholicism. I guess so, yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> she would buy me, like, a lot of stories about the, like, little storybooks and, like, audio books about, about uh, the Bible. Yep. And, um, yeah, I found that the stories in the Old Testament really interesting. <laughs> Do you remember why? It got boring. New Testament was, like, a snooze fest. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, the early stuff with Noah and the and mm. the Ark and and I, yeah, I don't know why. I actually just think the narratives are interesting. Mm. Mm. Sure, again, and this mm. kind of mystical, this this mystical, not the correct terminology, but this, um, <laughs> <laughs> this kind of unknowable God that keeps making decisions about things and decrees and making things happen. Mm. Um, 
yeah, that just really fascinated me. So I think that's probably part of why I was like, oh, Paradise Lost. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Chris, um, did you know the like, text quite well? No. <laughs> okay, sure. I'd read it, but I didn't know it very well. When did you I read it? It was more the story, like the Adam and Eve stuff and the and the, and Satan. And, the, and the, there's something in Paradise Lost as opposed to the Bible that is really, when you read it, it does kind of paint Satan as this protagonist in a way, or this anti-hero. Okay. Uh, which is obviously distinct from how he's presented in the Bible. Yes. Yeah, because <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I'm not super familiar with Paradise Lost. Could you just mm. like give us like a real, without cheapening the magic of Milton's oh work? Oh God! What is, what is Paradise Lost? <laughs> like, what's the blurb of Paradise Lost? Well, it's 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 the the fall the fall of Adam and Eve, but it, it sort of begins with Lucifer and the, the the fight between Lucifer and his angels who've joined him, um, and and God and and Archangel Michael and and him being cast out into hell. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole sequence, this whole bizarre sequence, which we never really found a way to put into our version, where <laughs> Lucifer is, like, designing hell. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He's, like, making it habitable, and he's, like, building columns and, and creating this sort of architectural space that is hell. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so there's some kind of, like, really odd touches in this really dense poetry that you're mm. kind of like, oh, right, that's intriguing. <laughs> what, yeah. what are you on, Milton? What are you, what are you smoking? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, and so then how did you guys um, determine what to leave in, mm. what you wanted to explore? How did you make those decisions? Um, yeah, really it was just like what, what struck us as being... Um, Interesting. It was very kind of impulse-based, I suppose, rather than being like, oh, we need to include this and this and this and this. Mm. Like, I think there's there's a part in Paradise Lost um, where Eve is talking about um, how she doesn't want to have children. Yeah. Because because it's dangerous, you know, because she's... No, in the original no text or in your version? In the original text, yeah. in Paradise Lost. And that kind of really stood out for us as being something that is pretty relatable at this point in time yeah oh my god yeah. elizabeth because like that was one of like the standout moments mm. for at least my experience of your show like that was like the memorable moment that like first it was just like stunning to watch you especially be the undertaker of like original sin <laughs> was like so epically handled as a stage moment but even just like as, as a jake's private experience of the show oh. was like watching elizabeth brennan be eve taking the bite of the apple was immaculate and then to have that wonderful monologue like that monologue about the desire which you should talk more about than me of not wanting to have children, the reason not to want to have children, about us being the apocalypse generation. Mm. That whole thing was just stunning and spoke so much to our time and the anxieties of people, our age especially, and those yeah. younger than us as well, like the things we've inherited and the things that we know will be like be passing on yeah, to the debatably yeah. unnecessary next generation. And what's okay for us to do under these circumstances? Oh, my God. Is it, is it morally all right for us to reproduce? Yes. Um, which, yeah, just was reflected in the original text, which was really sort of interesting. Mm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a question. I don't know. I mean, personally, I don't know necessarily whether I have an answer to it. Sure. <laughs> um, but it is something that people are asking themselves now. And mm. I thought that was that was worth exploring. Did working on the show change your mind about any of those sorts of issues? Um, I don't think so. Not yeah. really. No. I don't think I really have a clear grasp on, on what's okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I think, but I think that expressing the terror of it. Of, of being like, we've, you know, we really have destroyed everything. Yeah. Um, hope, God. <laughs> I mean, hopefully there is a way out, hopefully. Mm. But um, the more, the more we sort of progress along this path, the more we hear horrible 
um, predictions of what's coming yeah. climate-wise. Um, and the, yeah, the loss, the loss of some perceived paradise, uh, whether it's the paradise of, I guess, economic, the relative economic prosperity that we've had, we've grown up in, in this developed country, mm. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the prosperity of the 90s of, of us as kids where we kind of just took so much for granted. Yeah. Thinking that that is lost forever whether it is or whether it isn't, the feeling that it is and the fear that it is is so prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, just the kind of, the idea that we uh, are maybe heading into a, a time where survival is is the bottom line again rather than, I guess, the, you know, the, the icing on the cake, yeah. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Like taking taking it for granted that we will survive. Yeah, right, because we've, just, mm. we've never witnessed our own extinction before, so mm. that sort of thing is so difficult to grapple with or even imagine. Yeah, yeah, sure. the prospect of it is, is so huge. Mm. And, um, oh but the, yeah, the, the, the loss of it, and the kind of um, not really realising until it's too late as well, with Adam and Eve, I think, um, was sort of interesting. But also, it sounds very serious, <laughs> it is a silly, silly, silly show. Yeah, yeah, goofy time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, yeah. No, that's... So silly. Yeah, well, that stuff super rang true. Mm. And yeah, it certainly got me thinking about the thing of like, we as people, is we certainly need to learn from consequences, but it's the thing of like, especially globally speaking, like we can't afford to like learn from consequences because mm. the consequence, as your show so, you know, neon signly points out, <laughs> it's like dooms around the corner. So we can't wait for that to be the thing. It was like, oh, they were serious this whole time. Like Al Gore wasn't making those numbers no, up. No, <laughs> no. Yeah. And when we keep hearing that something needs to happen and we just haven't, haven't. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, because everyone's just, I don't know herd mentality or something mm. god yeah um, and then like mil- like so another thing that was interesting maybe not so much in the text but about the creation of paradise lost the the epic poem mm. was um milton as this as this blind writer where he he's kind of he didn't write any of it he was dictating it all to his daughter right who was scribing for him the whole thing the whole time and i guess the idea of the creation of a a person even adam and eve reproducing but also the the responsibility of creation as an artist and as a like what you know the the power that you feel in that scenario <clears throat> do you do you have a responsibility as a creator um what, what and what is that responsibility mm. do you have a strong feeling about that yourself because this is like of course not the first time that you yourself have been involved with art that is directly discussing the climate crisis because mm. like a portrait of the artist as a young ham is a thing you did at the butterfly club a couple of years ago yeah um is that type of social justice global mindedness something that you consider to be an artist's responsibility or you as an artist's responsibility i don't actually think so mm. i know it's maybe it's strange to say but i don't know that i have a responsibility necessarily to to do that i think i mm. just felt um I felt a, a desire to do it and I felt the, the the importance of doing it. But I don't know that I would look at every artist and say, you really should be should be doing this. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it like art in itself is is valid for its ex- expressive purposes. Yeah. Whether whether someone watching it appreciates it or not, I, I oh. As as wanky as that maybe is, and and as sort of glorifying of self indulgence as that is, I think that's I, I I guess art for me feels like it should be distinct from responsibility in a way. Mm. No, that's yeah. super nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Mm. I think the first time I ever thought about that because I think coming through the drama schools that I have and us both going through Monash, I suppose for some reason, and maybe it's maybe it had maybe nothing to do with the education we received at these institutions, mm. but for some reason I. You know how you internalize those lessons about craft 
that you never interrogate because maybe you just haven't heard enough voices disagreeing with each other. Mm. So I did have those things inside of me that I would say to people about like, no, artists have a responsibility to society. They have, they have to say things about the world and the way that they think that things should change and stuff. But I think it's just because I never heard anyone really like speak back against that mindset for whatever reason. Yeah. And I think the, the, the for some reason the most, the time that I remember most hearing the, like a contrary opinion is I think Fran, it was, it was Fran Leibowitz saying that she doesn't believe that artists should have any sense of societal responsibility because I, I completely agree with what you're saying. It's mm. like art is valid for art's sake. And then Anne Bogart talks a little bit about the way that she perceives as I believe to be true as well. The thing of like people comprehend, like people having this belief that everyone needs to be like this solo op- solo operator and we hear these narratives about there needing to be like one hero of every cause and then you combine that with the commodification of art the way that it is and the way that we platform people like film stars and particular artists not many of them obviously but the ones that we platform and the belief that they need to herald in some type of intended change or intent or something but it's like that's a complete misunderstanding of at least what i consider to be so good and it sounds like you to an extent do as well Mm. the notion that like storytelling is such a vital human thing to be doing and that in is that that itself is a thing that is worthy of defense i think so yeah yeah Yeah. um yeah and that doesn't need to be a greater cause it's just a matter of like telling stories for stories sakes because that's what helps us survive and be a cohesive society i think so and i think that 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 any story will have validity to someone right Yeah, yeah yeah Um, yeah, whether it's more people or less people, I think even, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't mind, I don't mind the idea of someone creating art that is purely for themselves Mm. because it won't, it will never be like, I don't, I don't see how it will never be just for themselves. It will never be just for themselves. By virtue of what? By virtue of art having like sort of needing to interact with other people to exist, Mm -hmm. I think. Like, I don't know that, actually, now that that's come out of my mouth, I'm kind of like, yeah, is that even true? Yeah, <laughs> no, know. that's, no, yeah, keep going, this is so interesting. Um, well, just that it's, I, I don't, I don't know that it's possible to be entirely um, uh, wrapped up in, in your, you, I don't think you can make something just for yourself. I don't know that that's possible. Hmm. Someone else will always steal it. <laughs> Sure. And by steal it, I mean they will always experience it on some level, unless you literally create a beautiful statue and lock it away in a cupboard and no one mm. else experiences it but you. Right. In which case, then I suppose it is just for yourself, right? As soon as someone else interacts with it, mm. some some exchange is happening. I wonder, yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if that... What even counts as a someone? Like, even imagining a... Yeah, to use your statue example, like even if you do create it and then lock it away and no one ever sees it, is the act of having it be something that exists outside of your own mind. Like, Mm. can you be your own audience? And even then too, is like, are people perceiving art just kind of like a tangible breathing example of the world experiencing your art? Like to have that statue exist in space, is that the world experiencing your art in some sort of way that some part of your spirit required, like that something yeah. brought that art out of you, yeah, sure. you know, and it was some human compulsion that meant that you couldn't just keep it in your mind. Mm. It had to exist in a way that you could hold with your hands or hear with your ears. Yeah. 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 But then I guess just conversely to kind of completely contradict myself. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the idea of a creator having to create because it's inside of them mm. um, and not thinking about the consequences of that because there, there will be consequences at the same time, mm. you know, particularly in the context of like, I guess in the show itself, Lucifer creates this human being mm. to create <laughs> yes so lucifer um, creates adam yeah, yeah yeah it sort of before he's fallen 
is yeah. just to yeah, just to make sure that I've <laughs> recalled the story correctly. And for those of you who didn't see the Blue Shed's production of Paradise Lost, mm. so Lucifer designs Adam. Lucifer designs Adam, yeah. and um, and and Michael Archangel Michael kind of puts Adam on the market, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of decides the way in which Adam will be used. Yeah. Um, you know, Lucifer has just created this 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 beautiful thing that he thinks, well, you know, this 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 creature will exist, and uh, I guess the the potential for individuals to sort of take that thing and uh, make it something else is um, a danger in creation, I guess. And maybe there is a responsibility in how art is used, not mm. so much in the creation of it. Yeah. Because I think um, the kind of desire for innovation and to create and to push beyond the boundaries is partly why we kind of are here where we are, right? Like... Um, <laughs> it's just going a little off topic. But no, do it. <laughs> Where are we um, going? Well, just the the you know the person who who created plastic, who invented plastic to begin with. Yeah. Um, you know the excitement of that and the the new material and how this is going to change the world and make things so much better. And in some ways, it has made things a lot easier. And like there's so many things that have come from that invention, mm. but you know, is it partly responsible for the, <laughs> the the manufacturing process? Is that partly responsible for where we are now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it will be. Um, you know, the 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 invention exists, and then the use of the invention is maybe separate. Is there a responsibility in how 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 something created is used? Mm. Probably. But yeah. I mean, I think there has to be, right? Yeah, but that's super interesting. Mm. Yeah, the consequences, and then if, yeah, even then to like to bring it back to the idea of like artistry and storytelling. Yeah, the consequences of the stories that we tell absolutely mm. matter, especially in the you know you know capitalism and whatnot, and the commodification of these sorts of ideas as well, um, and the way that algorithms determine the way that conversations go and the discourse that we get to have, and the mm. seemingly we're only really capable of like at least in the mainstream and in pop culture capable of having maybe three conversations at the same time, you know, and every conversation we have is going to be perceived through the one or two lenses that we've decided are in vogue at the time, yes, yes. And, you know, and so in that way at least the most platformed stories and platformed voices are immediately, the consequences of, of those voices are the things that we then deal with, you know? Like the issues of the day are determined by that select group of people and stories that we're comfortable mm. telling. And it's the reason we keep telling such similar stories over and over again, because there's these issues that we aren't solving or we, yeah, yeah or we know that people want to keep having, you know? So that is, yeah, that's so interesting to think of everything from plastic through to adaptations of Milton, <laughs> the potential consequences of making those choices. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the I was talking to someone yesterday about performing Romeo and Juliet in schools, yeah. and whether to present um, two teenagers committing suicide, whether that was okay mm. to show in schools. Is it okay as a piece of art? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because in the production you've been doing with you, Romeo, you have been committing suicide. I have. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they laugh when I stab myself, and that's fine. <laughs> that's more on me than them, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dressed as a clown when it happens. We've made some choices. But like, is you know, the, mm. the, the existence of that as a piece of art is completely relevant yep. and good. Um, is it a, is it is it the best idea to be performing it in schools? I don't really have an answer to that. I don't know. I think oh, sure. the, the argument could be made that it's 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 not. Okay. Um, but and what, all, what's the argument also, that it is? Well, just that it is something that exists and right. and that you will encounter at some point in your life. You will encounter suicide or you'll well, encounter... you probably will. I mean, yeah. statistically, right? Right. Um, and I guess 
whether you, you know, is, is it, do you have a responsibility to show this as, some, as in a bad light mm. so that it's unappealing to people watching it? Is it, is it, or do you just present it and, and you kind of think that whoever's watching it has, you just hope that they have the kind of um, uh, interpretation, <laughs> powers of interpretation yeah. to kind of experience it as art mm. uh, or whether it, it will... Well, I, I guess you just, I don't know. I don't really have an answer to this. Sure. What do you think? No, well, that, that I completely agree with everything you mm. just said. And I think maybe that's, well, I, I'd say that's certainly a perspective that's supported by the fact of you presenting this story in schools, because presumably that's where these children are supposed to be developing this capacity to interpret things like art and mm. to have, to, to build the systems of intelligence necessary to, to, to see you performing Romeo and Juliet and be like, oh, they killed themselves because they were in love and they couldn't be together and then they got confused. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. And then, yeah, put that into whatever mechanisms they have in their mind and come out the other side, having digested a piece of classical literature, which, as as I've ranted about before, it's like Romeo and Juliet is one of those ones that stuck around. For some reason, we keep telling this story yeah. and to then get to the point where they can interrogate why that's the case. And you're yeah. like, why is this story so timeless? Mm. And it's going to be alongside me as a piece of literature for my life. <laughs> you know, people are going to keep doing it. Baz Luhrmann decided to do it. Um, oh, yeah. Baz. Oh, Baz. Okay, let's keep talking about your production. <laughs> so I'd say, let's dive in to the things that me... Just make it self-centered. The things that stuck with me. I yes, suppose I, could... I want to hear the things that stuck with you. Because sure. I think that's... Yeah, rather than me kind of interrogating you on... on... Did you think it was funny? <laughs> what about <laughs> when I, I did this? Beautiful? <laughs> um, oh, my God. Yeah. So beautiful. What a well-cast <laughs> Eve. Oh, God. Um, I'd say, like, one thing, of course, is, like, the fact... That, and I, I'm sure it's a thing we've talked about before. It's, like, it's really interesting in the sense of, like... I haven't seen... I haven't seen all of Bloomshed's work. But I certainly know sort of like a fair bit about like James Jackson's tastes theatrically. And I'd say it's even like, and I knew this would be the case going in. And then throughout, I was like, oh God, this is like the opposite of the type of theater that I would ever want to make yeah. or experience <laughs> on purpose, you know, yeah. um, just in the sense of like, obviously it's very, very well-made theater, but in terms of it being like the type of satire that it is, like even, and I had this sort of like rather funny revelation while watching, um, it was a scene between James and Emily and it was, um, between uh, and yeah, just even like especially the way that James delivers his text in the in the way the show function, it was like even just the way that he speaks. I was like, oh god, this is a really like refined example of like like satire man Australian voice, and just <laughs> and that that to me sort of like yeah was quite emblematic of and and tethered to this style of theatre that you guys have perfected so well in the sense yeah in, in, in all the ways that I'm saying like it's it's really well put together satire that is the type again that I wouldn't ever make and the type of theatre that because I think I turned to theatre and maybe this is socially irresponsible of me but I, I really turned There's to no a, responsibility Jake no, that's true ascertained <laughs> Brennan and Leibowitz say that I don't need to feel responsible yeah um it's not the the things that I was made to think about are not things like much to I don't know much to Breck's dismay <laughs> that <laughs> I I don't tend to turn to theatre for any type of like social instruction mm. or being forced to be like class conscious I suppose you know yeah, aren't yeah. things that I because I don't know rather lamely I think I tend to like if if I'm to emerge from a piece of theatre change substantially or like ruptured in a significant way um, it it tends to be 
an, like a, an emotional source of that rupture, you know? It tends to be... Totally, it's, yeah, hit, yeah. Hit, it's hit one of those organs, mm. you know? Like, I don't know, maybe... I don't know. would have a tendency to hit more of my stomach and my heart than my mind, the way that your show has. Mm. Um, so I think that's interesting. And I'm also grateful that I'm surrounded by artists like you guys because um, it's, it's a... It's, a motivation to, and an excuse to, and a really good reason to have to engage with this type of art, um, because I just love seeing what you guys do and what you accomplish, because it's so impressive, and you're also just like such wonderful performers um, and theatre makers, you know. So it's great to kind of have almost, you know, that <laughs> that that pressure from my from my you know passion for you guys and for you especially to like I really want to see what they're doing, and it just happens to be a thing that like I don't know. It's almost like. It's like when my sisters were really into basketball and I obviously didn't give a fuck about it, but it's like, I care about them, so I'm going to go watch them play basketball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? It's that. Yeah, no, um, I really, I get, I get that. Yeah. I think that's okay. I think that's understandable. I frequently feel that about certain types of theatre where I feel mm. like I, I'm glad this exists, but it's not necessarily the kind of theatre I would make mm. or seek out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. And I guess a lot of people consider all of theatre to be that, and that then they don't true. seek it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, other things that stuck out uh, stuck out was uh, James Mulca. Is it Mulca? Is that how you pronounce his surname? Yeah, Mulca. Mulca, mm. yes. God, he's... He, ever since the first time I saw him, he was in that production of Midsummer Night's Dream, where he played the lion. Yeah, And he was lion. just life-changing. Just like... <laughs> the, and it obviously continues to be the case and just developed his, like, his comic timing and comic sensibilities. That's very magical, I just wonder... Because he played, like, Milton and God simultaneously. Mm, yeah. And something that I really loved, um, just as, like a, like, a text function and, of course, as a theme as well, is, like... Um, and it's why it's so interesting hearing you explain the, like, the daughter-Milton connection. Um... The way he was a really wonderful moment, I thought, was the way he had to like switch for almost dramatic meta reasons, had to switch from being almost like a passive creator of this story into being into also being God and then God also being forced to act. And maybe this is tied somewhat to the appeal of the stories that your grandmother made you experience <laughs> from the Old Testament of God having to intervene and mm. to act in a, in a more active sense to the, the dual pronged effect of instigating dramatic action um but then also forcing the, the the plot to move along and and for us to also grapple with the artistic responsibility that an author is subject like very rightly subject to um yeah it was so nice to have kind of like all of those threads working alongside each other in moments mm. like that yeah and i think even just it's just occurred to me in terms of talking about your show uh, <laughs> as well sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, well like th there are some strange similarities that i'm now going to tell you and i know you're like surely there's nothing similar about these two shows <laughs> but um the sure. idea of the 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 author putting himself in something mm. sitting outside of it as the author but also you know um like putting putting themselves on the line by entering the story is mm. something that I think both shows have and is sort of interesting explored very differently. Sure. Um, yeah, but I think also the something that I'm interested in and maybe has kind of informed the style of the Bloomshed a little bit is yeah. the the juxtaposition of of like something that we know is very unreal and very theatrical. Um, and I think the performance style, generally speaking, is that. Mm. It kind of really, there's there's not a whole lot of naturalism going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, with the sort of reminder constantly that, that we are actually watching something real. And that is maybe more in the physical side of things, in the actual exhaustion of the performer. That yeah, you right. see um, pushed to the extremes a lot of the time in mm. the shows that we make. Where you kind of got the... the and it, it's more of, a more of an experience than necessarily like a textual thing, but you get the experience of 
a real, a, uh, the real um, watching of someone experiencing exhaustion that isn't fake mm. um, is made because you've pushed yourself to that limit. Combined with this theatricality that is clearly not real and the kind of reality and the unreality that's, that's kind of bashing up against each other for me is really interesting to watch. Yeah, oh my God. And I think I got the same feeling watching your show in a different way. Sure. But the... The reality of the of of the elements of the actors, performers, writer that is actually presenting something um, that, that there's no there's no artifice to it, mm. combined with the clear artifice of these other moments that are purely story and the kind of way that that in, in those interact with each other. Yeah, right. I think is really interesting to watch as well, and that's something I really loved about watching your show. Oh God, that's so lovely. Mm. Sure. No, yeah, I hadn't thought of that parallel at all, but no, that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, no, and you're so right. That was really well put about, yeah, especially the, the scenes of you and Eden, who played Adam. Um, yeah, the, the exhaustion that you pushed yourselves to in the way that it, yeah, as you so eloquently described it. I don't know why I feel the need to repeat it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, seeing the, because even, I, I, and I say, I'd say especially with the tale that you're telling as well, but it's like to see, there's almost something... That, that that points to the validity of the craft, which is not, it, it wasn't a huge thing that I think your show was intending to say, but of course managed to say the thing of like, and, and maybe it's a thing because it just matters a lot to me as like a theatre maker. It's like seeing you guys expend so much, like literal physical energy, like the type of energy that anyone could expend on any task that they wanted to. Mm. If they did it with the gusto that you and Eden in those scenes were accomplishing. It's like, oh, this story must matter a lot to these artists because look at how sweaty and tired they are. <laughs> And then it's also the thing of like, look at how hard Adam and Eve are working in the pursuit of this thing that they're trying to do. Mm. And then it just like, it even just like points to the act of exhaustion, you know, which is such a beautiful element to be able to bring to anything. Um, yeah. And that's, and even the thing too of like, and this is like a different thing, but the thing you brought up about an artist, because in, in Paradise Lost, the original text, does Milton himself, does he insert himself in that text or is that a thing you guys do? Oh, not in the same way. Like he doesn't, yeah, he certainly doesn't explicitly make himself God right. in the universe <laughs> of his own creation. Oh, cool. Great, great, great. Um, yeah. Which we all do to some extent. Yeah, when, yeah, yeah. when writing. Oh yeah. Otherwise, what are we, otherwise we're, I don't know, we could mm. just be AIs that have just read a bunch yeah. of Chekhov and then churn out another one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's something interesting that I I bored someone with my my take on the other day, but I'll try to tell a more interesting version of it. But I think um, the thing of like as you're saying, uh, uh, an author inserting themselves into a story that they're telling, or yeah, like a playwright putting themselves into a play, it's like how much of that potentially comes from. And I wonder what you think about this. Potentially comes from the thought of like with us living in this hyper vigilant, hypercritical, not saying cancel culture with my mouth society of the consequences of the things that you say with the voice you have being so immediately met with with reprimand, is there something happening, which I would argue it has been happening in the last few years or so and continues to happen, um, not that your show is an example of this, but is maybe the, some of the choices are potentially informed a bit by this cultural moment that we're in, mm. of being like, are people so afraid, not you guys, but are people generally so afraid of being misunderstood oh, yeah, that this yeah. tendency of artists to put themselves into work, either literally or not, insofar as to make sure that no one misunderstands what they're saying or to so ham-fistedly insist upon a particular context or manner through which one should digest the things they're saying as to not endanger themselves with you know, cancellation or criticism. Like People mm. are so afraid of being misunderstood that people are being less willing to leave vagaries in their art and the way that it's interpreted. Yeah. Um, 
is just something that your remark made me think about. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I think that's potentially something. I think that that is definitely something I've noticed in terms of the art that we're making at the moment. There is, uh, like, there's a there's a, there's a a fear. There's a <laughs> real fear to present a kind of a, you know, like... Like oh I'm a I'm a misogynist because I've written My Fair Lady kind of thing. yeah yeah because I've I've created this character Henry Higgins and he is a misogynist and therefore that is me yeah right you know the 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 fear of of that and and it's a, a reasonable fear as well because that is it it is sort of an easy reading to make at the moment and it's mm. um I guess whether you put yourself into it explicitly I mean is that is that less is that less dangerous by placing yourself in to kind of get a direct line to the audience? <laughs> is that yeah. what that sort of function is? I wonder. I mean, maybe. Mm. Or is it by placing yourself into the story, does that fictionalise you have more more licence to kind of explore That's things? That's so interesting. That they explore complexity that you you could get misunderstood in, in the real world if you were to explore this as yourself. But totally. But in the context of a... Of a you know, a show, is it? Is there more license to to say things that you might not otherwise be able to? Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, that, like, the illusion of control when it comes mm. to, like, oh, if I do it like this, people will get it. It's <laughs> yeah. like, that's never a guarantee. No. And then as you're saying, it's like, is, is that type of behaviour artistically the height of, like, courage or the mm. height of cowardice? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe both. Maybe both. <gasps> Contradiction! Contradiction! <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Um, I think you have to run off, don't you? Yeah, you have to I go do. and yeah. Um, Click great. Back. Oh God! Yeah, no. Oh my God! Thank you for such a wonderful. Okay, we'll we'll wrap up. <laughs> I was gonna do like I was gonna try and like really bring a James energy, and I didn't. I didn't a James do Hardy it. energy. Yeah, oh like God! A, no, you know, no like one wants that. We've got James Oh my <laughs> boyfriend Flynn. You know, like <laughs> that was him to a T. Like he was in the room. Yeah. <laughs> oh God! We'll stop this and then we'll wrap up. Put that in before the very end. Um, anyway, th- uh, thank you, Jake. Oh, good. We'll do know. a little break and then you can oh, do okay. like a full-blown farewell. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, okay, everyone, get ready for that, everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is the official wrap-up. So, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. Oh, I had a good time. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. <laughs> I said some things you I'll did. probably regret. <laughs> We all do. No, um, but I love talking to you, and talking to you in this context has been very interesting and, and enjoyable. Oh, good. No, it's been heaven for me. So thank you so much. Mm. Um, and as you kind of almost just said, like the things we said, we may already disagree with. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, friends don't let friends become theatre critics. Mm. Um, thanks for being here, Word. Elizabeth. Word. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, speak to you all really soon. Thanks for coming along. Bye.